Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the opportunities you do give us. Help us to be in tune and sensitive uh, to when those things come up. Uh, give us boldness and courage uh, to speak, um, Lord. So I just pray for my neighbor. I uh, just pray for further opportunities uh, to speak the truth and with all my neighbors, oh Lord God, and just um, pray for opportunities there. Give us wisdom this week uh, as we encounter various people. Lord, we do pray um, just now as we turn our attention once again to who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that we would honor you in our speech, um, that we would know that as we are talking about you, we are investigating you, we are doing so in your presence. So please give us humility, uh, give us wisdom, uh, give us insight, Holy Spirit, we would ask and pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so where we are at, um, we are talking about the Trinity and we are talking about uh, the relationships between the members of the Trinity, uh, and uh, we are trying to discern, uh, do the scriptures uh, indicate not only what those relationships look like in the outworking of salvation, but also eternally. We do know there are eternal relationships, and um, I've kind of made the argument that, um, you know, uh, how the Trinity acts in history, even in th from creation forward, uh, is it's the same Trinity. It's the same Trinity in eternity. It's the same Trinity working out in history. Uh, and so they're just like other acts uh, in history. The, the way the Trinity acts in history is a form of revelation. Uh, God is communicating himself and who he is. And we see that even in John 1, um, 1.18, the idea of no one has ever seen God, uh, but the only begotten God, that meaning the Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has uh, explained him. And so the idea is, even in how the Trinity works in history, that's a, that's a means of explanation, it's a means of revelation. And so what we've done, we've done that with the Father and the Son, how the Son uh, takes his lead and direction from the Father, even submits to the Father uh, from all eternity, I believe that, uh, but in such a way that they are equally God. And the same is true as we talk about the Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit are all equally God. We know that. We've looked at passages with regard to that, and yet there is a role for each person, uh, even from eternity. But the question is, well, what's the... We talked about the, the Son. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Uh, there is uh, the Son taking direction and being sent by the Father. What about the Spirit? How does the Spirit fit into all that? And so last week we started this, and we first started with the idea of uh, that analogy, that language that Scripture itself uses of God, the Father being the speaker, the Son being the word, uh, the content of speech, if you will, and then the Spirit being breath. And so we've started with that, and we're not finished with that, we just got started. Uh, and it would seem, even from things we see in how God reveals things to the prophets um, by the Spirit, it would seem to indicate a pattern of the Son, the Word, coming forth, or being begotten, from the Father, of course we know that, but here's the key, by the Spirit. Uh, that's kind of what we began to see. So the, the Son being begotten from the Father, even from all eternity, but then by the Spirit. And that's a pattern we see kind of with that analogy of speech, but we see it elsewhere too. It's not a one-off pattern, it's again and again and again, which further confirms the thesis, okay? Um, so that's where we've been so far. What we want to do now is just kind of pick out, like we did with the sun, some key passages that hopefully give some insight into how the Spirit relates to the Father and the Son. Okay? Uh, like I said, this is more difficult because there's, in a sense, less data uh, about the Spirit's relationship with the Father and the Son than with the Son, but there is some, and there are several passages we can look at. Turn to 1 Corinthians 2. Turn to 1 Corinthians 2. Two. Okay, um, and we're going to start, uh, we're going to read 1 Corinthians 2, um, 10 through 16. And um, what we want to do here is we'll read it, um, and then we want to make some notes about um, what this declares. Now, just a little context, Paul is talking about the apostolic ministry and how the um, that, the, to the apostles. So the, the, uh, the, the we in here is the apostles, 
Okay? Just to give you a little context. The we in here is the apostles. And so Paul is kind of speaking on behalf of the, the apostles when he says what he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 16. So someone go ahead and read that. Okay, so, again, this is about uh, revelation being given to the apostles, uh, and Paul is this reflecting on that, describing that reality. How do you see the Trinity involved in this process? All three are mentioned, and that's what we want to pick up on to, to guide our time. What do you see? Yes, key. What does the Spirit do? Searches what? Yeah, he searches the, yeah, he searches the, the depths of God, meaning, and again, most of the references in the New Testament to God, um, just like that, are references to the Father. So you have the Spirit searching the thoughts of God. And what's amazing here, what analogy does Paul draw in the, like the, the, the following verse? Yeah, that's amazing. Do you see how he's arguing? He's saying, uh, we ha effectively what he's saying is, it's like us. We have an internal, immaterial part, a spiritual part, and uh, that spiritual part, that internal part of us, knows our thoughts. He, and he argues from us back to God. Do you see how that works? Which is kind of astounding, actually, when you think about it. Uh, um, Paul is drawing a, a lesson from how God has constituted us as creatures. And he's saying, well, that's actually reflective of what's going on within God, the spirit searching the depths of God, the, the depths of the Father. Okay, so that's what the spirit's, that's kind of the starting point of this whole process. Then what happens? Comprehension by who? Yeah, so the Spirit knows what's in the, fa you know, the Father, right? Um, and then what, what happens in this text? What happens next? There's a giving, very good, right? So the Spirit first searches the depths of God, understands all that's in God's mind, right? Um, uh, the Father's mind, and then the what is happening here is, in this case, the Spirit takes that and gives it to the us. Now, again, the us here is the apostles, those receiving divine revelation, right? So apostles, New Testament prophets, that sort of a thing. So the Spirit, just, just like elsewhere in Scripture when we talk about how is revelation given, uh, we see the Spirit here first starting, searching the depths of the Father, then taking that and giving it to, in this case, to the apostles, right? Who in turn, as we see in the rest of the passage, and this is part of Paul's point, as the apostles, we are proclaiming to spiritual people, uh, to those who are ultimately regenerated by the Spirit, uh, we are proclaiming what the Spirit has given us, revelation that the Spirit has given us, to them. So you see, I see this chain. But at the very end, in verse 16, uh, what does Paul say? Yes. Yeah, they've been given the mind of who? Christ, the Son, 
by the Spirit. So what do you see? The Spirit searches the depths of the Father, and he takes that, and in this case, he gives it to the apostles. And what is the result? They have, through the Spirit, the mind of Christ. Which, again, fits this pattern that we are seeing um, that uh, it's from the Father. Uh, what is being communicated? Well, what's being communicated, the content is the mind of Christ, the Word, right? But through what means? Through the Spirit. The Spirit conveying that from the Father to, in this case, the apostles. But what the apostles are, have is the mind of Christ. And in the general context of 1 Corinthians, in these early chapters, Paul is talking about the message of the gospel. The mind of Christ, the content of the gospel, uh, centered on Christ himself. And Paul is saying, look, that's, this new revelation is coming from the Father, by means of the Spirit, um, to make this work. But you see the same pattern. From the Father, the speaker, the Spirit is making that happen. The content is all about the Son, the mind of Christ. Okay? What questions, uh, and again, this is just one passage, we're going we're, we're gonna to work through more, but it, it shows the same sort of pattern that we're talking about. And in this case, it's the apostles, right? There, uh, there's, there's, there's a great debate on verse 13 and what exactly is trying to be communicated. But if we keep the context of here is revelation being given through the apostles, it's the idea of the Spirit is teaching the apostles how to combine the right words with spiritual concepts, right? Which we, then we inherit, you know, through the scripture, the written scriptures, um, and, uh, and 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 in, and in their case, their audible proclamation. Um, but yeah. Uh, okay. Any other questions or comments on this? Oh yeah, Susan. Right. 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 Yeah, I think there's there's some implications that way. It, remember, um, but it's here, the, the the primary purpose of this particular passage is talking about revelation through the apostles. But um, you know, even from maybe that from this passage, but also from others, we would say that because the Spirit indwells us, and He even talks about here, uh, we impart these things to spirit people in the sense of those who are regenerated by the spirit and so there is that sense of even the reception of revelation say from the apostles or for us through the scriptures that needs to happen through the holy spirit to make that effective so that it doesn't just fall on deaf ears so that's when we talk about things like well first regeneration but then uh having the indwelling spirit uh illumination in the sense of understanding and understanding not just in the data of the words and what is asserted, but how we live it out, how we apply it. Um, uh, yeah, good. Um, I think Ned was next, and then Mike. Pretty well answered. The Spirit gives deliverance, the understanding. Is that the way you phrase it? Essentially, right? Uh, in this case, the Spirit starts with the Father uh, and the depths of the, the Father uh, and his mind, which... The content of his mind is the mind of Christ. That's the content. And he takes that and he conveys it, in this case, to the apostles to then speak to others, right? Well, and that's what we, Susan's question was just is. Um, yes, that is talked about in this passage. But the primary thing Paul's arguing for is, hey, we as apostles, 
we are proclaiming this gospel, and here's how it, how, here's how it works. And yes, we are proclaiming it to everyone, but the only people who are going to understand it are those who are regenerated by, by the Spirit. But for our purposes, what we are looking at is this pattern, right? From the Father, what is conveyed? The Word, meaning the mind of Christ in this case is how it's referred to. How is it conveyed? The Spirit. The Spirit starts with the Father, conveys that information, just like a speaker and breath and the Word, right? It's that same sort of pattern, okay? Mike. <laughs> How would I describe that? Um, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. And then Paul explains it. What he, he, he elaborates on what he means in verse 15. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So um, I have to think about that a little bit more to be precise, but I'm not sure if he's at that 15, if he's primarily talking about the apostles because that's what he's arguing. is like, we, the apostles, have the mind of Christ. Why? Because of revelation. Uh, so I think that's probably the primary thing. But again, we're just kind of looking at it for this, this pattern, n- not just exegeting the whole passage. Uh, yes, Bruce. Spiritual person. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Through the Holy Spirit. Yes. And that goes back to Susan's question, right? Is that um, there, is, there is implications for us being able to receive. We don't receive revelation like the apostles do, but we do. The Spirit makes, when we read this. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what we call illumination. Good. Okay, let's move on to Luke. Luke, um, or backwards, I guess, in in this case, backwards to Luke 1. And again, our interest is seeing how does the Spirit relate to the Father and the Son. Um, And you notice, you know, even in the last passage, it's not, we're drawing inferences. It's not direct. We're noticing a pattern. Um, it's not like Paul or whoever is coming out directly and saying uh, the Son proceeds. Uh, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father by the Spirit. There's no direct passage that says that, right? So what we are doing is we are looking at other passages and we are looking and seeing, well, what's the pattern and can we draw inferences from that? And that's what we're doing. So we go to Luke 1. Luke 1, uh, of course, we're talking about the birth of John the Baptist and then the birth of Jesus. So let's, someone go ahead and read, uh, we'll just parachute down into the middle, uh, Luke 1, 30 through 35. Okay, so obviously what is happening here is the, um, the eternal son taking on a human nature in addition to his divine nature. So what we are seeing here is the birth, if you want to put it that way, of the son's human nature, okay? Uh, but there, I believe there are still things that we can learn from this. Uh, in terms of... Trinitarian relations, uh, what do we see? What's that? How's this going to work? Yeah. How's this going to work? And what is the explanation by the angel? 
Yeah, he'll be the, and we need to be careful with the title Son of God. I've said this multiple times, but it bears repeating, right? The title Son of God, at least when you work through the scriptures, is often a functional title, meaning Adam is a son of God in the sense that, uh, yes, he, God created Adam, but he also gave him this role of kingship and priestlyship, um, priesthood. There we go. That's the right word. Um, you go to uh, Israel. Israel is called the son of God, uh, uh, Exodus 4.22. Why? Because it's a kingdom of priests. Okay, so there's a kingly and a priestly role. You go to David and his line. They're known as sons of God. Why? Because David's line, and ultimately we know through the ultimate son of David, Jesus, they are kings and priests. So this idea of king and priest is associated even at a human level with, um, uh, uh, it's a functional title often. Now, we are not in any way denying uh, the eternal sonship or that Jesus is the son of God, but we are drawing a distinction between Jesus' eternal sonship and the title and role of the ultimate messianic king, which comes about through his incarnation, okay? So you see that here because it talks about him being set on the throne of his father David, right? But there's a little bit more um, that we can see through this, but let's get Susan's question. I would say they're probably both, we should both understand them as God the Father. Yeah, so they're just different. You think of all those titles. Remember when we went through all those titles and names? They're just different ways of referring to the same person. Yes. Yes. Correct. Yes. And, and often, at least according to, I mean, there's a, there's a great study by a guy named Murray Harris, and he wrote this book, um, Jesus as God. And it's an older book now. I think it originally came out in 92. But um, he has this great chapter where he, where he just talks about how, let's say in the 90, 90 with the exception of, let's say, five or so passages, like every, he argues every reference to God in the New New Testament is referring to the Father. Um, and so, with a few key exceptions. For example, John 1.1, 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, referring to the Father, and the Word was God. And that second use there, it even seems like John is trying to say something like this. Whatever is in the Father, in terms of his deity, he is also in the Son, uh, the word has this. The, the, the word has the same quality of godness that the Father has, and you see that same truth reflected in Hebrews. Um, you know, uh, I think it's one three, where he is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. So, but that shifts your mindset, right? Because as as a as a, and we talked a little bit about the history of this. Um, that as Western Christians, when we read our Bibles, we see the word God, and we just kind of think of generic God, right? We just kind of think of generic, kind of, we don't even think of a person of the Trinity. We just kind of think of, you know, the whole, uh, if, we're, if we're doing well, we think of the, the whole triune God. And that's true, right? Uh, there is one being who is God, and it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. We understand that. But usually, at least when we're talking at the, the authorial intent of the use of God in the New Testament. Normally, uh, majority of the time, the Father is being referred to, okay? And I would argue that's, a, you know, to your point here, that's what's happening, right? He found favor with the Father, um, and, uh, and uh, even the language of the Most High, he'll be called the Son of the Most High, meaning the Son of the Father, Okay? But here, we want to pay attention to the Spirit. What is the Spirit's role in all of this? He's the means of human conception, right? So, and notice, notice verse 34 and 45 in particular. Um, Mary asked, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, 
and the power of the Most High, the Father, will overshadow you. Therefore, logical implication, based on what he has just said, the child to be born will be called holy. Why is the child called holy? Well, because he's the son of the Most High, but also he was conceived by the means of the Holy Spirit, right? And he's known as the son of, in the son of God. Again, uh, there is, <laughs> there's heresies in history that say, well, see, the son only comes into being even at, like, say, his conception. That is not what I'm arguing for. Uh, what is coming into being here is the son's human nature, right? The, incarnate, the incarnational human nature. And what I'm saying is, is that when that happens, there's the same pattern. Uh, from the father, uh, what is coming, what is being begotten? The son, by means of what? The spirit. Um, but what I'm arguing for is that's happening in his incarnation, but it is the roles of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in this are reflective even of eternal begottenness. We know there's an eternal begottenness, but uh, it seems like it's appropriate for the same persons to do the same roles in eternity and in, in time. And that's basically the argument. Julie. Yeah. Exactly. Right, and that goes back to the whole analogy of speaker, word, in terms of content and breath, right? So if we look at the creation account, a word is spoken by the speaker, um, but what is empowering it? What is enabling the word? What, co what allows the word to even be spoken, even in terms of a human conception of speaking breath, right? You don't, if you don't have breath, you can't speak a word. Right? Um, in a human, you know, from, from even at what I'm having right now, I'm only able to speak the content of my speech because of the, the word, or the, the spirit, the, <laughs> the breath um, coming out, right? And uh, we see apparently that same reality in how the Trinity functions. Uh, even here, right? So the, the Son is begotten uh, from the Father by means of the Spirit. Okay, and that's that's the same pattern. Okay, what questions? Again, I just want to for emphasis. I am not saying at all in this passage that the sun is the sun is coming into existence. I'm not. This is definitely about the human nature of the sun coming into existence. But what I'm arguing for is that pattern that's happening with the human nature of the sun coming into existence is reflective of the eternal. Uh, relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, okay? Because it's the same Trinity acting in both. And so the roles in both would seem to, it would seem a fair inference to say the roles in both cases are going to be the same, okay? What questions before we keep going? Yeah, exactly. So Philippians 2, like we looked at before, uh, the Son has always existed in the form of God. He has the exact imprint of the Father's nature. Um, and what I'm arguing for is that imprint of the nature is conveyed eternally. So we talked about eternal begottenness. Um, I'm arguing for that, the, that, that eternal begottenness is by means of the Spirit. Right? That the Father eternally begets the Son uh, by means of the Spirit. Which kind of goes back to the whole question that we talked about last week in terms of history and uh, when the creeds say the, uh, the, the, um, the spirit proceeds from the Father, that's what the Nicene-Constantinople Creed of 381 says. Um, and I would affirm that, absolutely. But then what happens with the Western church is they say, well, the, the spirit <laughs> proceeds from the Father and the Son. And that's where it's like, I don't think that actually reflects the pattern we're seeing. It reflects the procession of the Spirit from the Father. We definitely see that. Um, but the other direction is not as clear to me, even as we were walking through these passages. Okay? Now, let's look at a couple more. Uh, let's talk more broadly of...
uh, the baptism of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. So um, go to Matthew. Let's go to Matthew 3.16. Again, this is the Son incarnate. Um, okay, let's read uh, Matthew 3.13 through 17. Someone go ahead and read that. So this passage is like used by everyone to draw Trinitarian uh, uh, implications. So like oftentimes, and I think we did the same thing, we went to this passage to show, hey, all three persons are distinct from one another, right? I mean, that's one implication from this passage. You've got the Father uh, speaking, you've got the Spirit coming and resting on the Son, you've got the Son... Um, you know, uh, being baptized, coming up out of the water. Um, but what pattern, in terms of what we've been seeing here, right, uh, what, what's the pattern? What's happening in relation between the persons? Free spirit is coming from the Father. To do what? What's the Spirit do? Yeah, well, what's the Spirit do, like, physically? Well, yeah. Well, what's the picture, right? Like, what's the spirit? He, he lands on the sun, right? He's he's coming to rest on the sun, um, and this is the kickoff to Jesus' earthly ministry in a lot of ways, right? Uh, because we see those passages in, say, like Isaiah 11 that talk about the Messiah is going to have the spirit of wisdom and the fear of the Lord and all of these things on him, and so this is affirmation, you know, of the sun. Uh, but you see that connection there. This, this, the, the, the father is saying, this is, actually, it was. This was my beloved son uh, with whom I am well pleased. Not that he's no longer that beloved son, but like I think there's an implication there from eternity, right? This, this is the son I have sent. This is the guy I was talking about in Isaiah 42. He is the Messiah, but he is the eternal son. But you see this pattern, right? The father speaking, affirming his son, and he affirms his son through his word, but how does, what, what, what else, um, to Rachel's point, uh, the Spirit himself coming to rest from the Father to the Son. So there's a procession of the Spirit from the Father to the Son, right? Not from the Son, but to the Son, at least the pattern that we see here. Again, this is, a, this is the working out of the Trinity's uh, eternal mission uh, in history, uh, and what we're saying is that, that what we see here is a pattern of the Trinity acting in history, but that seems to have, we, we, since it's the same Trinity, we would say, well, that, that's, it's appropriate for them to do it this way because that's how they've always done it. Uh, that's the argument, okay? That, from, again, from the Father, uh, uh, from the Father, the Father uh, affirms the Son. So the Son is begotten of the Father, and in this case, the Spirit is enabling that affirmation of sonship, even from the Father to the Son. Um, so again, that same pattern. So less, it becomes less of a triangle, right? Normally how we think of the Trinity, we think of a triangle, right? Three points on a triangle. But what we're talking about here and seeing from here, it's like more like a line segment, right? Father, Son, and the Spirit is sort of... I mean, all analogies fail. We understand that, but uh, it's sort of the line segment in between, right? Uh, he's he's the go-between. Uh, sort, of, you know, we're, uh, language is failing us here, but based on the pattern we're seeing, he's 
He's like the go-between between between the Father and the Son. He's conveying life. He's conveying information. uh, He's conveying affirmation. He's conveying fellowship. Um, And so, what we again, the argument is what we see based on these patterns is the Father eternally begets the Son by means of the Spirit. Uh, At least it seems that way um, according to the patterns that we're seeing. Um, But even if we were to extend that, so here's the start of Jesus' ministry, and then as he acts, uh, what happens immediately after the baptism? You can even look down here. Blows into the wilderness, why or how? Yeah, the Spirit leads him, right? So the Spirit's like moving him to do what he's doing as the Son, the Son from the Father, right? Right? Uh, and that holds true for the rest of his ministry. Uh, Matthew 12, 28. Remember, Jesus casts out a demon um, from a blind and mute man, and he sees. And Jesus, uh, you know, the, the scribes and Pharisees are like, you're doing this by Beelzebul. And Jesus is like, no, I'm doing this by the Spirit of God. Uh, his whole ministry is carried out in the Spirit. Uh, Acts 10, 38. Peter's talking to Cornelius about Jesus. And he's like, this, this Jesus is empowered by the Spirit. So again, it's that same pattern. The Father is sending forth the Son, but what is he doing? He's empowering the Son. He's um, sending the Son through the Spirit. Um, And so the argument is that's not just a temporary thing that happened in time. And historically, it's what the Trinity has been doing for all eternity. Um, That's the argument. Okay. Uh, Okay, questions up to this point. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness, so you get that distinction of God representing Himself in His own creation. Mm-hmm. Um, really interesting to tie that. Mm-hmm. The Spirit that's tying that function together. Yeah. That the Father in the heavens, the Father in the flesh, to be able to. Son in the flesh. Well, but as the Father, Emmanuel. Mm-mm, no, uh, it would be the, the, the Father doesn't become incarnate, the Son becomes incarnate. Right, the son has the exact same nature as the father, and maybe that's what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is manifest, and we see that in John. Yeah, absolutely. That he is explaining the father. Um, he's still the son, but he's explaining the father through his incarnation. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, let's do. Um, let's go to. So I, I want to finish basically. What we've seen so far in the passages we looked at, we've seen one direction from father to son, right? Like everything we've looked at is father to son. Now there's a return direction, but the return direction we're going to talk about next week. But let's do one more um, thing uh, before we close out from father to son. So uh, go to John 1, back to John 1, but not the passage you're probably thinking about. Um, John 1. So we've seen in John 1 the... um, the eternal son and the only begotten son from the father. But then there's other sonship that is talked about in John 1 and in John in general. Um, So look at John. um, Actually, let's, let's read John 1, 9 through 13. Someone read John 1, 9 through 13.
Okay, so who is being born here? The children of God, meaning believers, believers exactly, right? And how are the believers born? Of God, from God, right? God, the, the, and referring to the Father. The Father is the source of the children of God, meaning believers, okay? Now we're talking about creatures, right? We're talking about, but born in the sense of spiritually born, right? Uh, believers, those who are regenerate, those who know God truly, right? So we are talking about human beings uh, and them being, um, uh, being able to repent from sin, um, you know, and, and receive, receive who? Receive the Son, the, the only begotten Son, okay? So we see that in this first chapter. Now we're going to go to John 3, but I think David's hand was up, so... Yes. Yes. Yeah, from the will of God. It's not from the will of man. It's not from, you know, human initiative. It is from God's initiative, right? Absolutely. Rachel. In the terms of God, like the referent of... Let's start in verse 12. Okay. No, no, you're fine. So, verse 12. But to all who did receive him. Now, that him there is in reference to the Son. Okay? That's the light who's coming into the world. Yeah, yeah. So, the true light, um, based on, you know, we didn't read those verses from, like, four on. But, um, but the him there is the sons. But to all who did receive the Son... Who believed in his name, the name of the Son, uh, he gave the right, the Son gave the right to become children of God, God referring to the Father, who were born not from of the blood, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God, referring to the Father. Okay? So that's that's so the ultimate source of a believer's birth, repentance, faith, is the Father. But it is through the Son that that is accomplished, right? We see that here, right? The, the Son gives the right, the authority, for people to become the children of God based on the Son's work, which gets laid out in the rest of the gospel. Does that help? Okay, good. Bruce. Yes. So, you're, yeah, you're using it as an illustration. Right. Right. Yes. And that's like even John, as he works through his gospel, he'll talk about different kinds of belief, and he'll say, um, that's not belief. He'll, he'll use the word belief, but he'll effectively say, that's not true belief, that's not true belief, that's not true belief. And then he shows, okay, what is true faith that's born of God? Because that's what matters, is if the believer is born of God. Now, why are we talking about this? Because I thought we were talking about the Trinity. Well, we see some of that there, but then go flip over to John 3, right? Flip over to John 3, and this is how we'll end. You guys know this passage. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these um, signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or you probably have a little footnote that says from above, 
Uh, I think Jesus is making a play on words. The same word means the same, both things. It can either mean from above or again. Okay? Um, so you can kind of keep both senses in your mind. Unless one is born again from above, uh, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So how are, again, we're talking about human beings, and we're talking about human beings exercising repentance and faith. We know that that, that ultimately comes from the source of the Father, but how does it happen? Is it articulated in this passage? How does that birth? From the Spirit. Right? So what do we see? We see the Father, and John uses this language, gives birth to not the only begotten, but in this case, believers. He gives birth to believers by what? By means of the Spirit. Now, obviously, we're talking about believers. We're talking about human, we're talking about, um, uh, you know, people who have been sinners and then are being changed. So that's who we're talking about. And yet... John, uh, and you see this in his gospel, you see it in his epistles, John is happy to talk about, hey, we're going to talk about um, the only begotten of the Father, and we're going to talk about the children born to the Father. There's an overlap to a point, right? Obviously, there's a huge distinction, but there's an overlap to the point. And Paul, uh, Paul, John argues and talks that way. And so even what we see here in John 3, even though he's talking about human beings, how are they born? From the Father, by means of the Spirit. And given the overlap of concepts, even with the only begotten of the Son, we would expect that that's reflective of even the only begotten himself. That the only begotten is begotten by means of the Spirit. Right? It's the same pattern, although in this case, it's being applied in a redemptive sense to um, God's children, God's adopted children. Okay? But John doesn't use the word adopted. John used the word born. <laughs> like He uses that word born. Okay? Uh, questions? At, like one question before we close. Yes. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's multiple views on that. I think the strongest case is if you go back to Ezekiel 36 when it's talking about the new covenant, it talks about how when the new covenant comes, uh, one's going to be sprinkled clean. Uh, but that's in connection with the Spirit. And so I think that's what John's alluding to, or Jesus is alluding to here, right? He's alluding to the idea of cleansing through water and the Spirit. There's not, not a connection to baptism, okay? Because what does baptism symbolize? Baptism symbolizes... Um, so you, just to illustrate this, um, Acts, when one of the accounts of Paul's conversion, I think it's the first one, Ananias, the guy who sent to Paul, tells him, why do you wait? Rise up and wash away your sins by being baptized. Like, that's what he says. Not because the water does anything, but because it is symbolic and a sign of entry into the new covenant. Um, so it's not, it's not um, necessary in the sense of, like, uh, it, it does anything magical in and of itself. Thief on the cross, right? That's the premier example. We understand that. But um, there's a reality, even of what we're seeing in Matthew, and even as we look in the New Testament, that baptism is strongly tied to your whole conversion experience, right? Such that if you're a person and you're saying, all right, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not going to get baptized, then I would say, like, you know the implications of it. You know this, what's, why it's a command and why it's being, and you're not willing to do it. Yeah, I'm going to say you're probably not saved. Not because you did the act, 
but be, per se, but you're being disobedient, right? And you're unwilling to show that you're entering publicly into the new covenant. Uh, so there's not, not an implication for baptism here, but it's more by implication than it is direct, if that makes sense. We can talk about that more later if you want. So that's a good question. So, um, All right, let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Father, we just, we ask for help. We ask for help to speak to you reverently and to understand what you have revealed. And Lord, first, we want to give thanks because you have given birth to those of us who are in Christ by your Spirit. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for sweeping us up into the Trinitarian life. We thank you for the, the perfectly harmonious work of each person, the Father um, being the source um, and initiator, the, the, the Son purchasing our redemption, the Spirit sealing us, the Spirit regenerating us. Lord, we thank you for these realities, and we pray that we would relate to you in the way that you ought to be related to. Help us to pray especially, Lord. I, I just confess I am so weak in how I pray to you, um, and I want to pray rightly. And so I just pray for you, that you, Son, through your Spirit, would teach us how to pray to your Father rightly. Lord, we pray for this morning. We thank you that as you're gathering your people, you, Spirit, are indwelling your temple, your local church as the local temple. And Lord, we pray that you would empower us for singing, for praying, for hearing your word preached, for fellowshipping with one another, because we have all been born of the Father by you, Holy Spirit. We thank you and we praise you. Help us, help those who are on the way, um, help us to encourage one another, speak truth to one another. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.